Welcome to a special series on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Tennessee World Affairs Council President Pat Ryan. We're pleased you've joined us today. Earlier this year, we presented a series of virtual conversations on the invasion of Ukraine featuring Ambassador John Kornblum. We've been continuing those conversations alongside our partner, the American Council on Germany. I'd like to thank Dr. Steve Sokol at the Council for all they bring to these global awareness programs. Their work to strengthen German-American relations is an important contribution to knowing the world. We're also joined by the World Affairs Council of Harrisburg. Thanks, Dr. Joyce Davis, for supporting the program. We welcome their members and members of the World Affairs Councils around the country who are with us today as well. I'd also like to thank our Tennessee partners for this series and all that we do at the Tennessee World Affairs Council, the National Area Chamber of Commerce, Belmont University Center for International Business, and the University of Tennessee Center for global engagement. Our most recent program featured a conversation with former Ukraine Minister of Science and Education, Anna Novosad from Kyiv, where she is overseeing efforts to rebuild schools in war damaged areas of Ukraine. Next week, we'll host Ambassador John Kornblum, former US Ambassador to Germany, Professor Marietta Velikova, Director of Belmont's Center for International Business, and Tennessee World Affairs Council Vice President, Dr. Breck Walker. Note that the start time for that program is 1 p.m. Central Time. We're also pleased to announce uh, one of our fall programs in the Distinguished Visiting Speaker Series. TENWAC will host Admiral Michael Rogers, retired U.S. Navy four-star on November 7th and 8th. He is the most recent director of the National Security Agency, Commander United States Cyber Command, and Chief Central Security Service. We will offer a town hall on the evening of November 7th and a panel discussion on the afternoon of November 8th. You're invited to uh, both of those events, so save those on your calendar uh, to see Admiral Rogers. We invite businesses and other organizations to contact NWAC for hosting and sponsorship opportunities for the visit. I'd also like to share with our members and friends that the Tennessee World Affairs Council has had a transition on our board. Ambassador Dick Bowers and Professor Jeff Overby, longtime directors have finished their terms. They'll stay active on our advisory board, but we thank them for everything they've done over the years to sustain the council and help produce exceptional programming. We also welcome former Nashville Mayor Carl Dean, a long serving board member to the chair's seat. He'll be a great leader in service of public education at the council. And we thank outgoing chair Jim Shepard for his leadership and hard work bringing you global affairs awareness programs. One last piece of housekeeping. This World Affairs Council is a public service organized by volunteers and made possible by your financial support. Please become a member and make a donation. The council is in the midst of a transition from a founder-led volunteer organization to a more sustainable model. Your financial support is essential to the continued availability of these high quality speaker programs and our education outreach to youth. Visit tnwac.org to give and to become a member. Thank you. Now onto our program. The Cold War was a period of intense competition and geostrategic struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union and their allies in the Western and Eastern blocs following World War II. At times, it threatened to turn hot, potential battles between combatants armed with thousands of nuclear weapons, but always featured political, economic, ideological, and military confrontation. The post-Cold War era saw the Russian Federation and the United States work together on bilateral and global issues, a spirit of cooperation. That has evolved into the unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine, the extensive support of Kiev by the United States and its allies, 
the expansion of NATO in reaction to Russian aggression, and a disruption in global stability and international norms. Is this a new Cold War or is it something else? With us today to talk about your father's Cold War and the current situation between Washington and Moscow is distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt University, Thomas Allen Schwartz. Professor Schwartz is a historian of the foreign relations of the United States with related interest in American politics, the history of international relations, modern European history and biography. His most recent book is Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography. The book has received considerable notice and acclaim and you should buy a copy. A conversation with Professor Schwartz about the Kissinger book is in our video archive. There is more complete bio for Professor Schwartz on our website landing page for this program and in the program notes uh, when this program has been archived. Uh, we have almost 200 registered guests today, so we expect many terrific questions for Professor Schwartz. Please add your questions to the Q&A tab at the bottom of your Zoom screen, and you can start putting them in there now. Uh, please don't use the chat box for that purpose. Uh, Professor Schwartz, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for very much for having me on the program. I believe you recently taught a class on the Cold War at uh, Vanderbilt University. Uh, most of your students probably uh, reflected on uh, the Cold War as uh, you and I might have thought about World War II in, in our generation. Uh, can you start us off by setting the scene as, as we consider the new relationship with Russia uh, by talking about the Cold War uh, that consumed almost half of the last century? Absolutely, thank you, Pat. Let me start with a very large disclaimer. Um, my professional home is as a historian, uh, which makes me very good at predicting the past, but doesn't really endow me with great foresight um, into gazing into the future. I have found myself actually quite skeptical about some of my historian colleagues who claim to be able to analyze the present and predict the future based on that understanding of the past. I tend to think, and uh, this will be something I would emphasize, that professional historians should take a vow of humility on that matter, recognizing in that in our own studies of the past and in walking around in the shoes of past historical actors, we recognize that things could have been very different if leaders had chosen differently. And this is something I hope people will keep in mind. Let me take one example very recently, one of my favorite websites, HDiplo, um, the HDiplo Forum, has been featuring a discussion of historian Philip Zelikow's book, um, The Road Less Traveled, which makes the fascinating case that the United States missed an opportunity to broker a settlement of World War I shortly before it entered the conflict. This has uh, led to some very strong responses, especially from historians who argue that Zelikow overstates the chance uh, for avoiding war. But it led me to think that maybe 100 years from now that we'll be having a, a discussion about our current situation in the same way. Now, the question you've asked me is to address, is this a new Cold War? It's one I found myself um, asked often, um, especially after my book on Kissinger came out. Kissinger's career and prominence can't be understood outside of the Cold War. He's very much a product of that time. And the fact that he's still alive and making comments about our current international politics, I think connects the era of the Cold War uh, to our own. One recent comment of his worth mentioning here that appeared last week in the Wall Street Journal, um, he said, we are on ed the edge of war with Russia and China on issues which we partly created 
without any concept of how this is going to end or what it's supposed to lead to. Now, Kissinger's bleak pessimism there reminds me that I've given earlier talks about a new Cold War, but they were often connected to our relationship with China, a topic that emerged particularly after the publication of Graham Allison's 2017 book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Uh, this is not to say that people did not recognize the danger of Vladimir Putin's Russia, especially after the 2014 seizure of Crimea and attacks in the eastern Ukraine. But to a certain extent, the tendency of American leaders on a bipartisan basis was to denigrate Russian power. It was Senator John McCain, for example, who called Russia a gas station masquerading as a country, and President Barack Obama, who dismissed Mitt Romney's assertion that Russia was our leading geopolitical foe by saying the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. I think this led many uh, analysts to focus more on China's only significant rival to the United States. Now we face both. And historically, this recalls the first half of the Cold War, when the monolithic Sino-Soviet bloc was the enemy. This was the case during some of the most dangerous crises years of the Cold War, particularly created when China entered the Korean War, the Taiwan Straits crises of the 1950s, the repeated Berlin crises, and finally the Cuban Missile Crisis. These were the years the Cold War threatened to become hot reminding us that the term Cold War originated, sometimes linked to Walter Lippmann, the great columnist, as a uh, discussion of the period when the superpowers refrained from using nuclear weapons. In that sense, Cold War defined a state of hostility be beneath the threshold of some of the most destructive weapons ever developed. Needless to say, there are many levels beneath that threshold, and that's something I'll come back to. My major point of argument today, and what I'd like to put out, is that we need a new vocabulary other than Cold War to talk about our current situation between the United States and Russia, and by connection between the United States and China as well. I contend that talk of a new Cold War with Russia and China may serve to distort our understanding of the complex relationship with both of these powers, as there remains a mix of cooperation and connection, even as rivalry and confrontation grows, a factor that becomes even more significant when one contemplates the complicated picture for America's allies who are navigating between the adversaries. Talk of a new Cold War also may, as the quote I read from Kissinger suggests, that our goals are more expansive than they really are, namely the idea that we might be in this to defeat and collapse these regimes and replace them with democratic governments. As an alternative to new Cold War, President Biden has tried out the concept of autocracy versus democracy, but that seems to me much as much for American popular consumption as for defining the current international situation. There's also been talk of great power rivalry, a term which may be factually accurate, but lacks the capacity to inspire or adequately define the tensions between the United States and China. So why should we not talk about a new Cold War? Well, Pat alluded to this when I talked about teaching by Cold War course, it's worth saying the Cold War itself is a fading memory to many Americans and no longer has the impact it once did. I recently asked my Vanderbilt research assistant, Molly Katz, to look for materials related to millennials, how millennials look at the Cold War. And one point she discovered that as of 2022, more than half of our country now uh, has people under, uh, who were under 12 at the time the Cold War came to an end. 
For this group, knowledge of the Cold War is mostly secondhand, and given the way American history is taught in high schools, probably non-existent. An interesting statistic, which may reflect the difference generationally, comes from an economist poll after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Even though the majority of Americans supported Ukraine, one of the sharpest divides was the relative support of Ukraine, 56% of those under 30 compared to 92% of those over the age of 65 in supporting Ukraine. Another reason for not using the term of the new Cold War is I think that it, uh, it conflicts with a, a, a proper understanding of the original Cold War and its history and development over a half century. It does see to, seem to be that there's a danger in the term the new Cold War will encourage a great deal of thinking uh, in analogies and uh, a tendency to make facile comparisons between methods and policies adopted during the Cold War without taking into account of the differences between our situations. My late academic advisor, Ernest May, wrote a book called Lessons of the Past, in which he documented the tendency uh, during the Cold War of American leaders to look back to World War II for analogies. Unfortunately, this led to the famous Munich analogy, which seduced many American leaders into thinking that all communist advances were required an American response, lest the dreaded word appeasement come to be charged. This helped result in the Vietnam War. In many respects, the original and early period of the Cold War should be understood, I think, as strongly connected to the American experience and psyche coming out of World War II. What I mean by this is that American society had become inured to war and domestic mobilization for war by World War II in a manner that rolled over into the early Cold War. That relative domestic unity of purpose and relative trust in government is an important contrast from the Cold War's early years to both its later post-war Vietnam development, as well as to the domestic situation of today's America. Trust in the government of the United States has not really developed since the 1960s, is not restored. So let me give you an example from a teaching experience of mine. For my diplomatic history course, I often show the first part of the famous Frank Capra documentary, Why We Fight produced a show to American troops during World War II. In the film, Capra presents the struggle with the Axis as comparable to one of freedom versus slavery, invoking the American Civil War in comparison to Lincoln and the struggle to end slavery within the United States. The same theme, of course, dominated from the early mo earliest moments of the Cold War. Soviet behavior in Eastern Europe and Eastern Germany, the creation of police states, the arrest and disappearance of political opponents, the forced confiscation and nationalization of property, the imposition of communist governments and sham elections. All of this reminded Americans of Hitler's policies across Europe. In speaking to a group here recently at Vanderbilt, who are enjoying what we have called the Hubert Humphrey Fellowship for educational uh, leaders in, the, in different countries, I came across a famous speech at the Democratic Convention in 1948 in favor of civil rights by then Minneapolis Mayor Hubert Humphrey, the one in which he spoke of leaving behind the shadow of states' rights for the bright sunshine of human rights. But he also said, every citizen in this country, and I quote, has a stake in the emergence of the United States as a leader in the free world. That world is being challenged by the world of slavery. 
For us to play our part effectively, we must be in a morally sound position. I think that quote in many ways captures the connection between World War II and the early Cold War that dominated American thought. My point here is that Americans, uh, that America came to fear its former ally, the Soviet Union after World War II, had much the same mindset that it had acquired in the campaign against the Axis powers. It feared that the totalitarian ideology of communism, just like fascism and Nazism, would subsume all of Europe and eventually threaten the United States. It was really not that difficult for most Americans to go from Adolf Hitler to Joseph Stalin as the enemy of the free world, even though Uncle Joe, as he was sometimes called by Churchill and Roosevelt, had been our ally in World War II and had been instrumental in the defeat of Nazi Germany. The powerful ideological component of the Cold War was most in evidence in Germany. That is ironic in that American and, uh, American and Soviet armies met in the former Reich and Franklin Roosevelt hoped to strengthen the alliance with the Soviet Union through the demilitarization and denazification of Germany. But that quickly changed and not solely because of Roosevelt's death. Germany quickly became the center of the Cold War. Its divided status along with its capital of Berlin symbolic of the Cold War division. I think most Americans of a certain age remember John Kennedy's famous uh, uh, I am a Berliner, uh, the, the, uh, the importance of the Berlin Wall in crystallizing the divisions of the Cold War, Kennedy's call that people around the world, if they wanted to understand the difference between communism and, the, and democracy should come to Berlin. To many Americans, Berlin was the symbol of the Cold War. The collapse of the wall in 1989 marked the end of the conflict. It has been noted in many commemorations that there are more uh, uh, pieces of the Berlin Wall celebrated in the United States than in Germany. Now, because the early Cold War was such an existential struggle with both societies seeing their core values at stake, it found both superpowers willing to risk nuclear war to achieve their security and deter their adversary. Now to take it to the present, obviously the conflicts we place now with Russia and China carry with them nuclear danger. However, it doesn't seem to me that they bear with them this ideological and existential character. Indeed, they seem made of an older period of international relations when disputes centered on issues of territory and resources rather than ideological visions. To return to the World War I issues that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, the dangers of war in Europe now connected to Ukraine seem centered around alliances and territory, with the possibility of escalation connected to the idea of a prolonged and stalemated war, which may see Russia miscalculate and escalate in a matter which will expand that war. In Asia, the issue of Taiwan is deeply connected to China's understanding of its sovereignty and the narrative its leaders tell about its recent history of humiliation at the hands of the West. The counter narrative, which we tell ourselves of an island democracy defying a brutal dictatorship is also important, but should not obscure the fact of how intertwined the economies of Taiwan and China are now, despite their differences. The great irony in both cases today, and one which raises as many questions as it does answers, is the relative bipartisan unity with which American leaders have approached Ukraine and Taiwan. This is not commented on very often, but outside of some political figures on the extremes of both parties, both Democrats and Republicans have united to support the almost $8 billion to Ukraine, the admission of Sweden and Finland to NATO, and the Pelosi trip to Taiwan. 
Given our political polarization, such unity is extraordinary and noteworthy. The fly in the ointment, and I'll close with my remarks on here and, and talk more about the questions, is whether the American people and the representatives are willing to shoulder both the costs and potential risks of effectively deterring China and the Pacific and strengthening NATO and Ukraine in Europe, or whether we are seeing the rhetorical use of foreign policy for domestic political purposes. To a certain extent, a principled stance on foreign policy could serve to lessen our own domestic political divides. However, such a stance without the real expenditures and commitments could also serve to further domestic division and recrimination. And it seems to me that this is both the challenge and danger we face today. Tom, thanks, uh, thanks for your opening uh, scene setter there. Um, a lot to, uh, to work through. Um, not least of which is John McCain's gas station and Frank Capra's Why We Fight. Um, on, the, on the Why We Fight, you know, the, the U.S. public um, had many years to understand the evolving uh, relationship between the Western Bloc and uh, the Soviet Union. And it seems in our uh, current situation that the limited time span that people have with uh, absorbing what's going on in the world before moving on to the next thing, um, what would you tell people is your concern or you're, you're satis uh, satisfied about uh, how Americans are viewing this evolving relationship with Russia and extend that also to the, uh, our, our Western allies with the ability to uh, stay on task? Um, you know, the, the Cold War uh, lasted 45 years uh, mm -hmm. or so, and, and I don't know that anybody here is, is, is prepared for a long uh, confrontation with, uh, with Moscow. And, uh, you know, it, it's critically important to our support of Ukraine that, uh, that there's solidarity. So um, maybe we need some more Frank, Frank Capras to... Uh, well, yes, and I, I do think I do think um, in a way, at least initially, uh, uh, Ukraine's leader Zelensky uh, was able to mobilize this by, in effect, uh, the narrative on the Russian invasion of Ukraine is this uh, narrative of a great power um, essentially deciding it's going to invade a smaller country and take it over. It's a very simple narrative, and it certainly does. There are more complicated complications if one looked at the history of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. But I think uh, Putin's tactics uh, simplified the question for many in the West. Um, you might recall, Pat, that President Biden, uh, before the war began, um, in a, a moment uh, which would be called a gaffe, but was speaking truth in Washington terms, said that if Putin decided on a more narrow uh, level of, of simply expanding the control that uh, the in the eastern Ukraine, it might be hard to mobilize get, and get support from other, other countries. Instead, Putin overreached, uh, uh, deciding on a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, anticipating that Ukraine would collapse quickly, and really creating the narrative of, of a uh, overwhelming aggression against an innocent country, a country that really did not expect or uh, deserve that type of uh, military force used against it. That served, of course, to change attitudes about Russia in much of the West, and certainly 
mobilized uh, the United States. I mean, we're talking we're talking an awful lot of support resources going to Ukraine, eight billion, and as, as I mentioned, but it also changed at least initially attitudes in Germany and other parts of Europe as well toward Putin. Uh, his anticipation that Europe would uh, side or at least not side with the United States was proven to be wrong. Now, certainly, uh, there has not been worldwide unity against Putin, and Putin has found a number of loopholes, uh, countries like India and China, who have, of course, supported him. But the uh, powerful role that his aggression played in mobilizing uh, the West reminds me very much of what Stalin did in the early Cold War, when he seized Czechoslovakia, when he encouraged the North Korean invasion of South Korea, when he undertook actions which might have been explained in, in Soviet reasoning as defensive, but ultimately served to terrify the West and to convince the West that he was on the march toward world conquest. We know now that, that was, there was never a plan for world conquest in the manner in which it was often depicted then. But certainly the actions of Russia have created a sense that this is a regime that cannot be trusted, that it engages in violence against both its own internal political opponents and uh, against countries in its near region. And it has made even Henry Kissinger in that Wall Street Journal article I mentioned say that he thinks Ukraine now should become a member of NATO, something he opposed, but that is, necess is, is necessitated by Russian aggression. So I think in that sense, it did clarify, Putin did certainly clarify the issues for the West in a manner similar to how Stalin had done during the Cold War. You, know, you, you talk about Stalin and Putin and uh, the nature of leadership, and clearly the, uh, the ideological uh, dimension is present in the leadership of the Soviet Union. But uh, in terms of the, uh, the unity of purpose uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, we had generations of leaders who, uh, and the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, that uh, uh, espoused the domination of uh, Eastern Europe and, and uh, opposition to Western uh, economies and so forth. So it was a stark contrast there to what we see now as, as a one-man leadership that has taken the Russian Federation from uh, some level of, of bilateral or multilateral cooperation with the West to this now open opposition uh, with the uh, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Can you talk a little bit about the nature of leaders and how we got from you know, Stalin, uh, Khrushchev, uh, Brezhnev, uh, et cetera, to uh, now there's uh, one bare-chested guy on a horse? Yeah, we have, it is, it is different. And this is another reason why analogies to the Cold War can be misleading at times, because the Soviet Union did, and its leaders did take its ideology seriously. At least many of them did. I mean, the, there was a certain cynicism later in the, as the Soviet Union developed, but many of the leaders of the revolutionary generation like Stalin did take it quite seriously, that they represented a movement, a movement that they saw was progressive and it's, it's uh, what it brought to countries in Eastern Europe was something that uh, was needed and that uh, as it sought to undermine uh, Western countries that this was a, a part of history's progress. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a much simpler manner. We're looking at old-fashioned, a uh, one-person autocracy, a powerful state kept in line by a leader who uh, essentially ties the leadership elite to him through corruption um, and through the misuse of state resources or the corrupt use of state resources. 
There was a very good piece of the New York Times today talking about Putin's role, um, contrasting this idea of whether, whether there is within the Soviet or Russian elite now anyone who really would oppose uh, Putin. And that simply is uh, the the uh, columnist uh, uh, talking about this, the Russian analyst talking about this, says that's not the case. We're not looking at a situation in which there is likely to be a change in the regime. Um, the one hope is, in some ways, if Putin's objectives in Ukraine can be frustrated. And by this, I think we could even look at a uh, a peace settlement or at least a ceasefire in Ukraine that was essentially the status quo ante, basically pushing Russian forces back to where they started from, that would be enough to, I think, perhaps trigger the sense of failure and that that could ultimately lead possibly to some transformations. Uh, the point made by the columnist is that in Russian history, military failure has often led to reform. And he cites the Crimean War in the, 19, in the 1850s, the Russo-Japanese War in uh, 1904 and 1905, as moments when uh, a military failure provoked uh, a uh, uh, changes at home. And, and that might be what we have to hope for, not that we can uh, uh, bring about regime change, but that stopping the aggression and preventing Putin from gaining anything from his attacks on Ukraine could in fact lead to some changes in Russia. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, put in context, the uh, use of uh, Soviet power within uh, the Warsaw Pact, within the Eastern Bloc, uh, during the Cold War, places like uh, Hungary, uh, the, the uh, Prague Spring in 68, um, there was a lot of conversation and never any action by the West to try to uh, uh, forestall that as compared to now with Ukraine, we're all in. Well, I think during the Cold War, Actually, one of the things that was rather quickly discovered, um, you might recall that in the election of 19, or the early elections of the Cold War, one of the, the criticisms that was made of the containment policy was that it was too passive and that we needed to roll back communist power. But in fact, when revolutions took place in the 1950s, the revolt in East Germany in 53 and Hungary in 56, the United States and the Western powers did not act. Um, that was because of the nuclear danger, the fear that entering into the Soviet sphere of influence. We ex largely accepted Eastern Europe as under Soviet domination, at least to the point of not being willing to threaten nuclear war over it. Um, and that is, that is, of course, one of the, one of the uh, issues. The West really did accept the idea that the Soviet Union had expanded into Eastern Europe um, it did not approve of the governments it installed, but it did not. Um, it was not willing to undertake military force to change that. Uh, Ukraine um, shows something similar in the fact that uh, Americans and other European countries are not sending troops; they're sending equipment. They're trying to help the Ukrainians fight themselves. But there is this sense that because Ukraine is not a NATO member, we cannot physically intervene with American soldiers or other European soldiers. Uh, under NATO. Uh, that said, still the uh, fact that Ukraine is fighting as effectively as it is, is, is in part due to the, the types of supplies that NATO is providing it. And that is a helpful, that is a difference. And uh, Putin is continuing to blame the United States for some of Russia's frustrations 
um, but that hasn't involved direct military intervention. And that, uh, and certainly during the Cold War, the Soviets often blame the West for uh, encouraging revolts in Eastern Europe, even when uh, the situation was much more driven by domestic problems. You know, uh, Tom, you talked about the the, the Sidonese uh, trap with uh, with China, and um, you know the the idea that. Uh, a, a power will try to resist a rising power. Mm -hmm. Is there um, a, a corollary in political science or historical circles that talks about a, a declining superpower being a threat to uh, other powers uh, as they uh, uh, as as their uh, dominance uh, subsides? Well, it doesn't particularly have as as eloquent uh, an advocate as Thucydides, but certainly the idea. <laughs> that a power fearing its uh, decline or fearing uh, for its future will act aggressively is certainly there. Some historians make that case for German responsibility for World War I, that Germany feared, uh, even though it was hardly declining, but it feared the power of its adversaries and that it feared, and that it, in that sense, was willing to gamble on its uh, two-front war strategy um, in 1914 in a way that it felt it would not be able to if Russia and France increased their relative power, uh, or the, the, the uh, Entente allies increased their relative power. So certainly we have seen this. And in fact, Hal Brands in the recent piece that uh, the historian and uh, analyst out of Johns Hopkins in his piece about the danger of war um, over Taiwan makes the case that China actually may choose war, not because of its uh, growing power, but because of a, a fear that it's missing an opportunity, that it, its demographic crises and other problems might prevent it from taking action in the future, and so that it needs to act now, and so that this is one of the dangers of the possibility of invasion now. Uh, Putin certainly, in a way, uh, uh, has been arguing not Russia's, Russia's decline may have been relatively overstated in the West, the type of criticisms or the type of comments about Russia's weakness may have missed the fact that it still retained significant military power, even if its economy um, was still as one-dimensional as the McCain comment made out and the rest. It still um, has that capacity to act aggressively in its neighborhood. And um, Putin's um, interest in restoring the Russian empire namely those parts of uh, Europe or well, those parts the, that were really also uh, constituent parts of the Russian empire, uh, the Baltic states, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, those parts um, has been clear for quite some time. In fact, even since about 2007, so. Well, uh, great, uh, great things to consider here. But let me remind uh, our viewers, uh, our participants and uh, our Facebook uh, watchers. Uh, we're talking with uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz, distinguished uh, professor of history from Vanderbilt University. He joins us today to talk about the Cold War and what's happening in the U.S.-Russian relations uh, today. Uh, Tom, I don't want to get too far off track, but we, uh, we talked about China a little bit. Um, what lessons do you think China is taking? You know, they're obviously watching very closely what's happening with Ukraine, mm -hmm. but they're also uh, of the long view and, and looking at what the relationship between the Soviet Union and the West was as they see themselves becoming more um, uh, pitted against uh, Western interests. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think it is interesting that China has, and recently President Xi actually uh, talked about the strategic initiative they're undertaking 
is making significant efforts in uh, what we might call the global South, particularly Southeast Asia, Africa, South Asia, uh, Latin America. And in that sense, trying to expand the playing field in a sense uh, against the United States by also uh, cementing economic ties uh, with countries. In that sense, China is a different adversary from the Soviet Union in part because of its extensive economic power. And it's, uh, in that sense, a real rival with the United States economically in a way that the Soviet Union never was. And I think one of the lessons Xi is recognizing in this is the danger, particularly economically, of the type of sanctions that the United States has imposed on Russia and trying to, in a sense, uh, make China uh, much less vulnerable to those sanctions should it decide to undertake aggression against Taiwan and in a way uh, preemptively trying to develop relations with countries in its region and other places uh, in Africa and Latin America that will uh, make it far more difficult for the United States to um, unite internationally with other countries against the possible move against Taiwan. So the Chinese, I think, have taken certain lessons from watching how quickly Russia became isolated, even though, of course, their own alliance with Russia has helped keep it from being as isolated as it might have been. Yeah, uh, clearly there are many more interlocking uh, relationships between the United States and China than uh, there ever was uh, with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, invite some more questions here, and we'll turn to those in just a second. Uh, we have uh, a number of questions already, most uh, talking about the current era and Ukraine, and we'll uh, we'll get on those here in just a second. Let me ask one more question, Tom. Uh, you know, the uh, the United States uh, standoff with uh, the Soviet Union was uh, primarily through NATO. And uh, NATO was formed uh, to bring together the bloc of Western countries. And we've seen that uh, it's now expanding in, in uh, the face of uh, uh, the end of the Cold War. We expanded uh, uh, to some extent. But now we, we see as a direct result of Russian provocation in Ukraine, uh, Finland and Sweden, who would have ever thought that uh, they would become members of NATO? Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about what you think about um, your, your father's NATO and, and uh, Joe Biden's NATO. Well, this is it, it is fascinating, uh, both Finland and Sweden during the Cold War. Finland uh, actually contributed the term to the Cold War, Finlandization, which was the idea of a country having domestic freedom, but largely towing the Soviet line in foreign policy. Uh, Sweden was rigidly neutral in the Cold War, as it had been during World War II and uh, stayed that way during the Cold War, quite critical of uh, uh, many American policies, even while it uh, secretly cooperated with NATO to try and defend uh, its uh, territory. So I think the fact that both countries have explicitly joined NATO shows again, the degree to which Putin's actions have served to undermine his goals in that sense. Uh, very similar again to the way Stalin and some of his behavior, for example, um, brought Norway into NATO. Norway would never have joined NATO, I think, had not Stalin been as aggressive and Norway not experienced uh, Nazi invasion and recognized that it's, its vulnerability. So in a way, uh, NATO has always been strengthened by the enemy it's had and the actions of the Soviet Union have given new life to NATO. Unfortunately, I think NATO itself is going to need to um, now define its purposes more carefully. And also it is going to have to contribute far more to the common defense than many of the key members of NATO have, including of course, Germany, which 
Um, it was always said that NATO had three purposes to keep the, the Soviet Union out, America in, and Germany down. NATO no longer is uh, designed to contain Germany, but Germany now needs to step up and become a far more active and uh, engaged participant in NATO and Western defense. And that's going to be critical to deterring further Russian action in, in the East. We uh, have a couple of questions about how the Ukraine situation started. Uh, John McCaslin uh, asked about the uh, expansion of NATO. Um, and uh, Russell Goodman uh, asks if uh, internal divisions within the United States had anything to do with uh, showing that uh, Putin's boldness in Ukraine uh, might uh, might be more successful than it has been. You know, we, we talked with uh, Ambassador Kornblum about the uh, expansion of NATO and the uh, the Russian claims that uh, we promised never to uh, to move further east than uh, than we were uh, mm -hmm. at the time of the uh, breakup of the Soviet Union, and and he says uh, cate said categorically in, in our conversations uh, that uh, there were no such promises made. Uh, but this this continues to be um, out there that uh, it's not Putin's fault mm -hmm. um, that uh, we've we've sort of opened the door to. Yeah, no, it is, and it will continue. It is a, it is a bit like uh, the historical controversy I mentioned about World War One. That but did we miss an opportunity to more effectively engage Russia by expanding NATO to the east? I, I happen to, to to agree with Ambassador Kornblum that that was not the real question. The real question ultimately was what, uh, how, how best to provide security in Eastern Europe and what the Eastern European countries themselves democratically wanted, which was in this case a, a tie to NATO. I think NATO could have arranged a much more, um, uh, or, or the Russia could have in circumstances arranged a much more congenial relationship with NATO had it chosen to. But for, I think, a variety of domestic reasons, Putin um, wants to use NATO as a way of strengthening his own power domestically to control his population and to create an external enemy uh, to mobilize against. Uh, the other question of whether America's internal weakness also encouraged Putin in recent uh, periods, I would say that that is a, an open question. Um, I think both the degree of political polarization in the United States, which of course we know the Russians also tampered with in the 2016 election as well, as well as the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, undoubtedly gave Putin a certain degree of reassurance that the United States was not really in the position to act against any strong action. It, he, may have, he may have miscalculated there, but I think there was plenty of evidence that seemed to show that the United States was really washing its hands of taking strong military action, the, the public support wasn't there for it. In that sense, once again, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Stalin's decision to uh, countenance an invasion of Korea in 1950. Uh, the United States then was not spending very much on defense. It had withdrawn from South Korea. Um, it, it had allowed or had, had not acted as China had uh, fallen. In fact, it was there were recriminations in the United States about who lost China. And Stalin made the calculus that uh, the United States wouldn't do anything about South Korea. Uh, he proved to be wrong. Um, in this case, um, I think Putin's methods in Ukraine also triggered, uh, because he, he undertook such an overwhelming invasion, uh, uh, he triggered a reaction in the United States that he did not expect. Well, Ambassador John Kornblum is with us today, and, and he asks uh, this of you, Tom. Uh, you mentioned the need for a new vocabulary of power 
isn't this um, uh, one of the major issues that this is not a cold war, but what is it? Economic change threatening the collapse of empire. Even China worries about the outside threat of the openness brought about by digitization. Not to put you on the spot, but uh, the ambassador who is uh, representing the United States to most of the organizations in Europe, including uh, NATO, uh, would like you to name the name. The name. Oh, well, he's, uh, you know, I, I, in all deference to John, I respect deeply. Um, that I guess my my point here was to be a, a, a typical academic and say we need to do something without giving it my own name. Um, <laughs> after the end of the Cold War, there were a lot of people saying we needed a new national security policy since containment no longer worked. And there were all these people seeking to become the next George Kennan. Um, and I think we probably need someone now. Um, and I think uh, brands and some of the people at the Johns Hopkins School have been toying with different ways of approaching this and coming up with some ideas about how to characterize policy. Uh, but I will be perfectly honest and say that I feel hopeless in this particular regard. Um, naming, naming the type of policy needed, um, I think in this context is still something a bit beyond uh, my own capabilities. I do recognize that one of the things that's really going on and one of the reasons why there is such support for both Ukraine and Taiwan is the very simple view that these are small countries simply who want to be left alone and they don't want to be dominated by large powers. They don't want countries taking them over. There must be a relatively simple way to capture that moral imperative allowing uh, countries to define themselves. Now, Woodrow Wilson said, making the world safe for democracy and use the term self-determination, that those probably are not ones we can use these days in quite the same way. But I think that's what we need is something along the lines that would capture a very simple moral imperative of foreign policy of protecting countries from invasion and aggression from large powers, dictatorial powers. Um, the Truman Doctrine sought to encapsulate that back in 1947, but quickly got subsumed into this idea of defense against communism. We need something similar to the Truman Doctrine. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the issues that have arisen uh, post-invasion of uh, Ukraine. There are Americans being held uh, by Moscow, and, and that's uh, you know, a relic of the, uh, the Cold War. We, we swapped spies at Checkpoint Charlie, and, and you and I talked earlier, and, and uh, your Cold War claims to fame are having been, uh, having been at the Berlin Wall before it became chunks at American museums, and having been to the DMZ, where you, you signed a waiver that you might get shot by the North Koreans, but you were going anyway. Uh, talk a little bit about this uh, uh, tit-for-tat uh, taking uh, Americans prisoner um, in Moscow and then hoping to get release of uh, uh, gun runners and, and others who are being held uh, elsewhere lawfully. Well, the interesting thing here is that, of course, in the Cold War, the, the, the exchanges really did involve around espionage and spying. Uh, the Americans seized, even if they were uh, were um, uh, journalists at least do something of the risk of covering Russia, even if they that that uh, then they were exchanged for Russian spies. What's happening now is is product in some ways of the increasing degree which which Americans travel to Russia, 
Brittany Griner traveled to Russia because she could play basketball there and earn a lot of money. And there are a lot of Americans who have uh, developed economic ties to Russia that weren't, they were nowhere near as extensive as the ties to China, but certainly McDonald's in Moscow, all the other American firms as well were out there. And that presented a, an opportunity for Russia to, to grab people and to think about exchanges. In some ways, though, this involved, this reminds me more of what happened in the Middle East um, with the Iranian hostage crisis and then the uh, ongoing uh, issues in the 1980s over uh, seizure of Americans in the Middle East by terrorist groups to get uh, weapons. And then, of course, leading to the, the scandal of the Iran-Contra affair. In that sense, I think what we're looking at is a, is a defiance of the norms of international relations by countries um, we would in the past called rogue countries like Iran, uh, North Korea, and others. Um, and Russia has descended into that um, in its, uh, in its uh, current uh, actions um, in regard to the Americans it's recently seized. In that sense, it has less to do with the Cold War and more perhaps to do with um, old-fashioned piracy uh, a la the, uh, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the uh, um, I'm trying to think of the uh, North African states that seized Americans in the, uh, oh, the Barbary, Barbary, Barbary pirates. Yes, it has more to do with piracy than to uh, uh, Cold War uh, interaction. Let's talk about the, uh, the balance of terror, the nuclear threat that uh, was a major feature of the, uh, the Cold War. And what we see emerging now is uh, really a, an opaque new uh, Russian policy on the use of nuclear weapons. It's been threatened a couple of times uh, over Ukraine, but it has not been clarified as to whether the threat is a, uh, a local tactical nuclear weapon employment or a strategic uh, weapons uh, system threat. Um, and, you know, you and I, I don't know if you dove under. Uh, your, your table at your desk at uh, in school, but I can recall as a, a younger uh, man uh, being uh, in the North Atlantic on submarines, uh, either on ballistic missile submarines, uh, uh, looking at targets in the Soviet Union or on attack submarines uh, chasing their ballistic missile submarines in what was really, um, you know, the height of the Cold War tension, the, uh, us versus them on the nuclear trigger. Um, where are we now in the relationship, the nuclear relationship? You know, the Biden administration came in and renewed START, uh, but we've seen the, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement go by the wayside. Uh, there's no prospects for new nuclear arms talks. Um, it, it is a background issue, but uh, in, the, in the graph of um, attention and severity of consequences, you know, risk management here, we're in, we're in uncharted territory. What do you think? We are in very uncharted territory. Um, it seems to me that um, we're not engaged yet in the type of buildup we had in the 1950s, where uh, there was just an ongoing sort of adding to the nuclear arsenal. There's, there, what refinements are coming now are more in the realm of technology uh, for developing new means of delivery that would be uh, invulnerable. Um, also, um, we're emphasizing much more now on issues of defense um, and looking at ways that might stop nuclear attacks. Um, but nuclear weapons issue uh, between uh, the proliferation with Iran, North Korea uh, uh, having nuclear weapons programs and with that the destabilizing nature of that in the re regions. 
uh, Russia and the United States no longer really talking about nuclear weapons together, and China engaging in what seems to be a buildup of its own nuclear force. China had always had a fairly minimal nuclear force, now seems to be building up at least. Um, we are in uncharted territory, and I confess that this is both terrifically worrisome, but also um, uh, very unclear as to where countries are moving in this respect, whether nuclear weapons will become a new means of preventing action taken. And I mean, Vladimir Putin, in a sense, has deterred the United States from taking action in Ukraine by, by of course, threatening nuclear weapons, or at least this has been, President Biden has said that he's not, uh, one, one thing that bothers him is he doesn't want to escalate or create a situation where um, Russia might use nuclear weapons. And China, to a certain extent, uh, could threaten that if it undertook an invasion of Taiwan, and that would be, of course, uh, uh, I think a, a, a possible corollary of what, what Putin is doing now in trying to prevent American intervention. And so I think we are in uncharted territory, and it's not clear at all, and this is one of, one of the real dangers, I think, coming uh, with the, the, the ongoing tensions between the two powers, the three powers. And it's uh, additionally troubling when we see the level of barbarity being employed in Ukraine, the war crimes, that uh, are being documented and, uh, and protested by Ukraine and, and the Western allies. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a point of order from Ambassador Charles Bowers, who knows more about Berlin uh, than, than I ever might. Uh, he says, spies were not to quote, uh, swap at Checkpoint Charlie. Charlie was the easternmost checkpoint that led from the American sector into East Berlin, AKA the Russian sector. The spies were exchanged on the Gleinicke Brücke, which was a West Berlin the East Berlin, uh, the, to, excuse me, the East Germany border. Thank you, Ambassador Bowers, uh, for correcting my uh, my euphemism. I've watched too many Tom Hanks movies. I, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Richard Slade asks, uh, Tom, much has been made of not humiliating uh, Russia. Uh, why is that important? Thought to be important. Well, by some. there is there is the argument um, that, um, and this is an analogy to the Cold War that one of the, the uh, things that you find in the discussions during the Cuban Missile Crisis is figuring out a way to allow Khrushchev uh, to save face and that this was something President Kennedy was particularly concerned with. That this, is, this might be a projection, but the argument being that um, uh, a desperate leader will undertake desperate actions if they think they will be humiliated and therefore discredited in front of their own people and face retribution. So that this is the argument, this argument certainly was part of President Kennedy's argument for um, his own desire to settle the Cuban Missile Crisis and avoid military action um, and give Khrushchev um, some sense of victory uh, by pledging not to invade Cuba, um, this type of thing. And so this has been around as an idea among American leaders in dealing with their Soviet counterparts. Um, that you don't want to humiliate your adversary because that will push them to a corner and they'll undertake actions much more desperate. Um, it is controversial to a certain extent because um, uh, recently the Estonian prime minister spoke at Vanderbilt and she was asked this question about giving, uh, not humiliating Putin. And she, she really dismissed it immediately by saying, of course, Putin controls the narrative. He controls what the Russian people will hear. So there should be no question. You can't avoid, even if you defeat him, he will somehow manage to spin it in the narrative uh, in the Russian media in a way that will avoid that notion of humiliation. So 
it, it, that, that is the objection to it. But I, I think American statesmen, perhaps because they're sensitive uh, to how they would be treated if they were humiliated internationally, that voters would vote them out, so to speak, or Congress would impeach. This was something Lyndon Johnson once raised. If he pulled out of Vietnam, would Congress impeach him? Uh, and, and Vietnam fell to communism before the war, before he undertook the commitment. Um, that's something we have often projected onto foreign leaders with different political circumstances. And it may be that we should at least question it a bit. Sure. Well, let's get one more question before we run up to our hour, and then I'll ask you for your, your closing thoughts. Uh, Robert Allshuler uh, asks, uh, and uh, taking advantage of your having written uh, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography, uh, he'd like you to compare Tony Blinken to Henry Kissinger regarding style, knowledge, and competence. I know you've, you've got the Kissinger side of the equation, and I suspect you uh, know enough about Blinken to give us some thoughts on that. Well, it's hard. I, I think um, it's hard to compare a, secretary, a, a current Secretary of State who's dealing with a great deal of uncertainty with a, a Secretary of State whose historical reputation and who enjoyed a particular degree of power and authority that we'll probably never see in a Secretary of State again. Uh, Henry Kissinger is really unique in that, and so it's 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 a bit unfair uh, to compare um, a current a Secretary of State who must answer to the President and who has all sorts of other constraints on him to someone who is able to operate almost independently, especially as I depict in my book when he negotiated in the Middle East. I do think Blinken, Blinken to a certain extent is. Um, certainly uh, well-trained, educated, understands a number of issues, but he is constrained by his relationship to the president and to a president and to a country that's um, quite divided now. And I think on the whole, he has tried to um, present the United States in the strong positions on Ukraine and on China, but that he is, um, I think, uh, beholden in a situation in which I think the president is quite cautious and in which the domestic political situation constrains what the United States can do. Um, I don't think, I, I, I really don't know that, I don't know Blinken that well or his, his background that well, but it, I, he strikes me as, as, as uh, certainly very competent and knowledgeable, but he may, the po political circumstances may be particularly difficult for him to navigate. Okay. What a what a great uh, conversation we've had, Tom. Let's let's uh, hear your final thoughts on on Cold Wars, uh, the the big one and uh, the little one, and as we search for a name. Yes, and I, I I regret that. I regret that I can't be as 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 capable as I should be. And John's Cordblood's objection is is quite well taken. But I do think I do think we're in a different era of international politics, and we have to avoid. Uh, simplistic, simplistic analogies to the past where there are uh, where there are other complications. And so that um, especially in terms of advocating for policies of either um, uh, strong actions without a, a recognition of, com of, of the possible consequences of taking them. I am particularly distressed as I probably indicated toward the close of my remarks to the fact that we seem to be taking very strong commitments and stances in defense of these countries like Taiwan and Ukraine without necessarily making the uh, necessary uh, expenditures 
and commitments at home or explaining what these commitments might involve uh, to the American people. And in that sense, I fear that we will be in a situation where we have overextended ourselves rhetorically toward a defense of countries which will be seen by Russia and China as ultimately empty when they act, that we will not follow through um, on uh, what are these uh, very lofty uh, claims that we will defend um, a country like Taiwan or uh, other countries in Eastern Europe um, and not really make the preparations necessary to have adequate deterrence of possible Russian or Chinese actions. Well, we live in interesting and complicated times and we thank you uh, for helping unravel uh, at least uh, one, one chunk of uh, what we have to consider as we look at our relationship uh, with Russia going forward. We've been talking with uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz from Vanderbilt University where he is a distinguished professor of history. His focus is on US foreign policy. Today, we've been talking about the Cold War. Uh, thanks, uh, Professor Schwartz, for being with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me on this program. And I'm Pat Ryan for the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thank you for joining us. Again, please become a member of the World Affairs Council so we can continue these public service uh, broadcasts or make a donation. You can go to tnwac.org to sign up for future programs in this series. Next week, we'll be talking with Ambassador John Kornblum, um, Professor Marietta Velikova, and Dr. Breck Walker. And uh, you can find our other programs and resources uh, on the website. Thanks also to the American Council on Germany, the World Affairs Council of Harrisburg, and the World Affairs Councils of America around the country for being with us today. And our normal, uh, our regular uh, program supporters, the National Area Chamber of Commerce, Belmont University Center for International Business, and the University of Tennessee Center for Global Engagement. Thank you all, and thank you for being with us and bringing us some terrific questions today for our guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Tom Schwartz. Everyone have a great day and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.